All right. I've had some tech problems. We'll see if this works. So let me see if I can get this to go. Aha, yes. All right, well, we're going to come back to the scriptures. They were from three separate periods of Jesus' life. The first is recognition of Jesus getting harassed perpetually, right? The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and he's called a glutton. He's called a lush. He's called a drunk, right? Uh, and then there's the call to love our enemies. And then there's Jesus at, at, during the triumphal entry where he looks at Jerusalem, the city that will torture him to death and weeps over it, right? So I want to think about those three, but we'll come back. Today's sermon, we've been talking about wisdom, we've been looking at Proverbs, we've been talking about wisdom as a matter of the heart, and today I want to talk a little bit about empathy. Uh, Empathy as maybe uh, one of the gateways to wisdom. Empathy as maybe our starting point uh, for every one of our engagements uh, with each other. But if you didn't know this, you're going to know it now. Empathy is uh, controversial. So empathy is uh, being criticized. Uh, There's a segment of Christians who are concerned with the level of empathy being too high. Uh, Empathy untethered from uh, the truth. Uh, So one one article... Oh, come on! Come on! We just fixed it, Sullivan! Didn't we? And now it's working. Okay, we'll we'll see. Uh, The enticing sin of empathy, how Satan corrupts through compassion... It's by Joe Rigney. Uh, He writes it like C.S. Lewis. uh, So it's a very... um, That's another problem. It's a very C.S. Lewis style where you've got two demons talking with each other. How can we corrupt good Christians by making them empathetic? Right? And the issue is when empathy gets detached from uh, what Joe Rigney calls the truth. Right? So the truth has to take precedence over you empathizing with someone that the call to empathize and to be non-judgmental uh, has run amok in churches we don't want anyone to feel judged we don't want anyone to feel bad so we need to pull back on the empathy we need to emphasize uh, biblical truth right this has inspired others uh, so this is from Andy Maselli how empathy can be sinful um, uh, from empathy to chaos considerations from the church in a postmodern age by Abigail Dodd all of them are sort of uh, Picking up on this criticism of empathy, um, the seminary where Joe Rigney is the president has had issues, uh, faculty have left, uh, the large church there, it's a Baptist church in Minnesota, have had pastors leave, and it's all about this idea of untethered empathy. Just so you know, I'm not here to give like a, a detailed diagnosis of the article or to criticize what's happening at that church. I don't know enough of the information or the details, right? It's complicated. I have no idea. My goal today is simply to make a defense of empathy, right? Uh, in a world where it feels like uh, it's under duress, uh, in a world that I think where I think it's, it's shrinking, uh, I want to promote it. Here's typically how I approach these things. Um, If there's a balance, if there's a scale, right, and you say, where's the scale going? Like, is it it this direction or is it that direction? I sort of like Aristotle says, well, let's try to find the golden mean. Let's try to find a balance. So is it possible that empathy becomes a problem in a person's life? Absolutely. Can a person become so empathetic that they don't 
protect themselves that they become a doormat? Absolutely. Can we become so empathetic that we allow victimizers to flourish and people to get hurt? Absolutely. Empathy can become a problem. There's no doubt, right? The scale can tilt. But when I think about the culture we live in, when I think about even the Christian culture of our country, I don't get a sense that we have too much empathy. I would argue that the scales have gone so that we have so little of it, right? So the problem isn't to try to highlight the ways empathy's gone awry. To me, like the problem is we need more empathy. But that's where the focus has to go. And I'll give an example to help with this, right? Like I work in education. And every semester there will be a good student who um, ends up getting a lower grade than they deserve. It happens, right? That, that happens. A good student works hard and they get a lower grade. And of course, that matters. We need to take that into account. But if I think about, if we're going to change educational policy, if we're going to, like, as a university, start to think about changes, do I think that more good students get worse grades than they deserve? Or do I think more students get better grades than they deserve? And it's obvious to me that grade inflation is a much bigger problem. Students are getting grades they have not earned, right? It's a lot easier to get a high grade now than it used to be. If grade inflation is the much higher problem, then I can't let a few outliers, good students that get lower grades, change our policy, right? Policy should balance the scales, not focus on the outliers. That's going to be my argument. So empathy can go astray. We can use it improperly. It can be an issue. But I think the bigger issue is we lack it. Um, so I have some, I mean, there's lots of evidence, but there, I'll give you just a, a little bit. Can you, can you try to help me again, Saul, to see if this will work? Empathy, a matter of the heart, or wisdom, a matter of the heart. Uh, so uh, a recent book, uh, Jamil Zaki, The War for Kindness. I don't really love that, War and Kindness. That seems odd. Uh, but the idea is like, we've got to be uh, out on the front lines for kindness. And his research, and he does a ton of social scientific research, such psychological research about empathy, right? One of the stark findings from the introduction uh, is we've looked at empathy now for about five decades. Uh, and we track it through thousands of participants, and they are asked a series of questions, and it looks at all kinds of emotions. But in empathy, a lot of the questions are things like, I often look at multiple perspectives of an issue before I make a decision. Uh, I, I think I accurately understand the values of my opponent, right? It's like things like that. Can I take on another person's perspective? Can I understand what they're feeling, right? So these are sort of the questions, and it's self-identified. So I'm answering about myself. So here's one of the stark findings. Uh, Conrath, who's one of the researchers on this project, uh, used the technique known as cross-temporal meta-analysis to measure whether scores uh, of this uh, emotional intelligence test have changed over the years. And the results were startling. Almost 75% of participants in 2009 rate themselves less empathetic than the average person in 1979. And that's only going down. A lot's happened since 2009 in our world, in our country, in our culture, that's made it more divisive and less empathetic. So I would, again, I would suggest that we lack it. That's the bigger issue. We have a hard time being empathetic with others. 
especially people we disagree with. And there is what we call an empathy gap. Naturally, you and I, if it's my child, if it's a friend, oh, I'm going to listen. I want to feel what you're feeling. I want to understand you better. But if it's someone that we don't necessarily like, or if it's a political opponent, or someone who cheers for the Redskins or something, or the Commanders or something, uh, I suddenly don't have any empathy for you, right? You're the enemy. You're like a Yankee fan or whatever, right? We are great at in-group. We're not great at out-group empathy. So there's this gap. We lots of empathy for people we know and trust. Not a lot of empathy for people we don't know and trust. So this creates a, a, a problem. So someone speaking into this, someone I actually really like, I'll suggest uh, if you're looking for something interesting to read. Can you help me solve? I'm so sorry. I don't know why it's working sometimes in others. Can you? You want to just forward it when I tell you to? Okay. So David French, he's a Christian author. Uh, he's uh, actually a conservative Christian writer. He, he spent most of his time as a lawyer defending freedom of religious claims. So he would go to colleges who wouldn't allow Christian clubs or lots of other things. That was his work. But now he writes and creates all kinds of problems because people on the left hate him, people on the right hate him. And uh, he talks a lot about empathy and civility and kindness, right? And somehow this gets him in hot water with everyone. So he wrote uh, The American Crisis of Selective Empathy, that we are empathetic to the people we like in our in-group and we're not very empathetic to people we don't like. If you're looking for where to find, he writes a weekly essay called The French Press. It comes out every Sunday, it's great. But here's the, here's the issue he talks about. Nope, you're gonna have to do it, so I'm turning this off. Uh, the next slide, schadenfreude. Uh, it's a German word, experiencing joy at the pain of others. Schadenfreude, ah, yes. It's like, finally, Tom Brady's injured. I'm so delighted, or whatever. That's schadenfreude, right? I'm delighting in the pain of my opponent. Uh, and sadly, this happens a lot when it comes to politics. It happens a lot when it comes to religion and theology. It happens a lot when it comes to the neighbor we don't like, who won't ever mow their grass. It happens a lot when we identify our enemies, right? Schadenfreude. And it's not exclusive to the left, and it's not exclusive to the right. We're all guilty. And so in the article, David French highlights when this happens on the left, and most recently he highlights death shaming, right? So the idea is, can you go to the next slide? So, so the idea is, um, it's really sad that, you know, Fred passed away, but, you know, he could have got the vaccine, and he didn't. So... And there's almost a sense like, well, unvaccinated folks are dying because they chose not to get the vaccine. They chose to buy into some, something else, didn't listen to modern medicine, whatever it is. And there's a, a sense of like, I'm right and they're wrong. Especially when it's someone we don't know. Especially when it's a public figure, someone else, schadenfreude. I, I actually find some joy in the fact that now you've been shown to be wrong. And of course, it doesn't just happen on the left, it happens on the right too. Uh, I'm gonna highlight a couple of examples from J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance is an author, he wrote Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, he just recently won the Republican bid to be a senator from Ohio. So he won the, won the primary. He is an outspoken Christian. His faith informs, I mean this is his own words, right? Informs his platform and all that. 
If you'll remember when Alec Baldwin accidentally killed someone on the set of his new movie, did you hear about this? Alec Baldwin shot a, one of the guns that's supposed to be a prop, but it shrapnel came out and it killed a cinematographer. It was like a horror, awful, right? I don't like Alec Baldwin, he seems obnoxious, I don't know, but that doesn't matter, right? <laughs> a cinematographer died, not necessarily something happened, right? And uh, for those that don't know, right, so Alec Baldwin and Donald Trump, they had Twitter battles with each other. They would go after each other on Twitter and whatever. So Donald Trump had been prohibited from using Twitter. Alec Baldwin kills the cinematographer, and this was J.D. Vance's tweet. Dear at Jack, I assume this is at Twitter, let Trump back on. We need more Alec Baldwin tweets. So this is the next day. Because we all know that, right, I mean, who knows what would be tweeted at Alec Baldwin now that he accidentally killed a person on set, right? Schadenfreude. Joy at the pain of my enemies. A lack of empathy. Uh, this was in an article uh, before the recent primary election. The American conservative published a fascinating profile on Vance with great nuance and insight to describe the escalating American culture wars and the sense that many Americans felt that they were fighting for their beliefs and their very way of life. But the last paragraph contained these ominous words, especially coming from a Christian politician. This comes from David French's article. David Vance said, I think our people hate the right people. Our people hate the right people. So the world we live in, as divided as it is and growing, our neighborhood divided, families divided, religiously divided, politically divided, we don't have too much empathy. We don't have enough. J.D. Vance did not win his primary in spite of this. This didn't create controversy. He won because of this. People want politicians. People want politicians on the left and the right that will win, that will be snarky, that are aggressive, that see the opponent as the enemy to be defeated at all costs, and not as a group to be empathized with. So it becomes a kind of war. The issue I have is not that that's true. The issue I have is that Christians have bought into it. Christians feel like the stakes are so high I will compromise my values. I'll compromise like eternal Christian principles like love my enemy, care for my neighbor. I'll compromise that so that uh, my side wins. My team can exert more pressure on your team. And both sides, of course, feel like they've lost. If you think about the right, since 1950s, the culture's just, it's been one loss after another. Families change, sexual ethics change, education's changed. How many things have changed? Loss, loss, loss. You talk to people on the left, they feel like they're losing. Go to Nampa and there's being books being banned and we can't teach about race in the university and we're losing, 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 losing. And since we both feel like we're losing, uh, principles out the window. Empathy out the window. Now, how do we win? That's the problem. And then we cultivate teams, and then I get shot in front of I'm happy when something bad happens to the other team. All right, but we're not stuck. We don't have to be here, right? I'm gonna to suggest to you that the first step towards healing, the first step towards closing the divide is empathy. And I can't control anyone else but myself, so it starts with my own empathy and our own empathy, right? And I'm going to submit 
that this is ultimately what you see in the person of Jesus. So do you have the slide? I think the next slide is it, uh, the quote from what Shelley read at Saul. Oh, no, no, no. Keep it up. Nope, go back one. We'll get to Jesus in a minute. This quote's too good. I love it. This is from David French. So I talk about how both sides feel desperate. The left and the right, we feel like, oh, it's a zero-sum game, and, and how do we win, and what's that going to take? So David French's response to this, at least from a Christian perspective, even if we accept the desperate times narrative, we're in these desperate times, it requires desperate measures. Even if that was true, the desperate measures rationalization suffers from profound moral defects. The biblical call to Christians to love your enemies, to bless those who curse you, to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, does not represent a set of tactics to be abandoned when times are tough, but rather a set of eternal moral principles to be applied even in the face of extreme adversity. Yes. Amen. There are no times extreme enough to abandon the fruits of the Spirit. There are no times desperate enough to abandon love. And by the way, Jesus says this at a time when the political world was killing folks. You talk about persecution, like we suffer tweetings, they were suffering beatings, right? Paul is talking about love, sharing the gospel, he talks about with kindness and humility, and then it's of being imprisoned beaten, right? And eventually executed. All the disciples faced persecution, being fed to lions, the early church. And yet, the call to love your enemy can't just apply then when things are good. It can't just apply when it's convenient. It has to apply in the most desperate of times. So Jesus' response here in Luke, it's beautiful. Jesus who has been harassed. Jesus who has been under threat. Jesus where Groups of people have been trying to trap him so that they could kill him. Comes up over the hill and looks over Jerusalem. It's the triumphal enter. He's going to enter the big city. The city that will execute him. And Jesus' response is to weep for the people. To weep. Jesus came to the city, observed it, and wept over it. And he said, if only you knew of all things, right, what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. That is empathy. Empathy in the midst of threat. Empathy in the midst of the most desperate circumstances, at least in Jesus' life. He recognizes how lost Jerusalem is and it makes him weep. To care and to love and have concern for those that are lost requires empathy first. That's our, it's not the only step, it's the first step if we're going to bridge the divide. It's the first step. That it doesn't happen when things are peaceful, it happens when things are chaotic. That's when the challenge of empathy is the most extreme, right? Not when things are easy, but when things are difficult. Okay, so I'm going to try to give some practical help about what empathy is and how we might engage it in the last few minutes. But I want to start by watching a video from someone I love, Brene Brown. She is a, uh, I mean, she studies human emotion. She's a psychologist. She's, I love her. I think she is filled with great wisdom. So uh, the video is going to kind of help us di differentiate empathy from sympathy, right? And think about what empathy is, and then I'm going to talk about maybe some ways we, as a congregation, we as individuals might start there, start with empathy. 
So Sullivan, let's fingers crossed, baby. So what is empathy, and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions, where empathy is relevant, and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective-taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, I'm down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh-huh. Uh, no. You want a sandwich? Empathy <laughs> um, is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time, because you know what? Someone just shared something with us, it's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining that. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So, I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now, I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. The next slide has the four points she put up initially. I think of sympathy, I think of it like pity. Like, oh, I'm so sad. poor thing, right? Empathy is like getting down and trying to actually experience or see or feel the world from that person's perspective. Sympathy happens from a distance and empathy, I think, happens up close. So perspective taking becomes key. And it, it becomes the most important to bridge the gap for the people that are the least like you for the ones you have the most difficult time. What core values are they acting out of? Because I guarantee they're acting out of core values. What are their real concerns and can I understand them? I bet you I share them if I'm human. Safety, right? love, affection. Am I gonna listen? Can I repeat back to them what I just heard so that I can actually say, Is, am I hearing this right? Is this really what you are saying? How you're feeling, what you believe? Empathy is not the end, it's the beginning. It's not the last step, it's the first step. 
I can empathize with someone and not agree with them. I can empathize someone and not do what they're asking me to do. You have to understand this is true, right? I can empathize with you and in the end say, I still think you're wrong. I can empathize with you and say, oh, that's awful. I'm not going to do what you're asking me. But I have to at least start with empathy, right? That is one of the first steps to wisdom. What should I do? I don't know until I can first understand you. That's true of how do I empathize with my wife, my children, the, my congregants, and maybe most importantly, my enemies, the difficult people. Why do they act like that? How could they believe that? Why would you do that? Then slow down. Maybe have a conversation with someone like that. Maybe engage people like that. Right? That's how my, that's how my heart gets soft rather than hard. So I'm going to submit to you that we lack empathy. We don't have too much if we have too little. And that we're not stuck here. The great part of the book, The War for Kindness, is that we can cultivate it like a skill. He says empathy is like a skill. It's like learning how to drive or anything else. The more you practice it, the better you get at it. Right? So some people are maybe are more empathetic than others by nature, but you're not stuck at your... your uh, your genetic programming, right? You get to increase it. Let's become empathetic like Christ. Let's find a way to weep over Jerusalem, our enemies. Christ from the cross who asks God to forgive those harming him. Forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. That's empathy. That's understanding how lost they are, how confused they are. That, that the, 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 the way I was able to work towards forgiveness of my father was recognizing how lost he was how incapable he was of being who I needed him to be because of how he was raised. That empathy, that understanding of where he was coming from, of what his background was, of what his own history was, allowed me so much tenderness. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you show us what empathy is in the person of Jesus, that it's not just when times are good or when the stakes are low that we learn how to empathize or to love but it's, it's most needed when the stakes are high and there's incredible conflict. And there are conflicts, Lord, in our homes, in our neighborhood, in our community, in our country. And it's going to require Christians like us to risk enough to empathize with those we disagree with. To legitimately reach out in an attempt to love and care for and understand others. So help us to listen before we speak. And to understand before we seek to be understood. And to extend love before it's given. Amen. If you would please stand for our closing song.